from The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD. This is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is a conversation with someone that I just honestly love talking to. I first got to speak to Jennifer Finney Boylan a couple years ago for this show about her memoir called She's Not There. That book was one of the first bestsellers by a trans author and has since gone on to become a truly seminal work of the trans literary canon. She's Not There was published in 2003, and since then, the trans experience, both the experience itself and the way we talk about it, has changed in some really dramatic ways. And so I'm very happy to tell you that Jennifer Finney Boylan is back. Jenny makes her triumphant return to this podcast to talk all about those changes and her brand new book. That book is called Good Boy, My Life and Seven Dogs. So we discuss all of that, as well as how her own daughter coming out gave Jenny a first-hand example at how different this new, younger generation views being trans. As she says, it no longer requires an apology. Being trans is something to celebrate. So let's hear it. This is Jennifer Finney Boylan. So I want to jump into the book. In many ways, I think good and bad in the media, we perpetuate this narrative that trans lives only begin with transition and everything else is off limits. And I think that the book was a really necessary reminder that trans people's lives actually start at birth and that trans people have very like valid childhoods and youths also. I want to be very careful when I talk about trans lives and my own life in terms of the language that I use. By that I mean that I'm aware that there are many transgender women who would not refer to the first part of their life as boyhood. And it's really important to respect that. Having said that, I can tell you, so look, I, I came out publicly as trans when I was 40. It is a, a fact that I've always been the same person in my heart, but I did have lived experience in which my way of being in the world was very different. Maybe I don't need to apologize for the way I view the world, but I'm going on like this because I want to be respectful of transgender women who reject the idea of talking about their boyhood. And I don't mean to be disrespectful to my sisters. I hope it's okay for me to say that the way I look at my, the first half of my life, or the first two-thirds of my life, there was a time when I experienced boyhood and I experienced manhood. It wasn't something that I was particularly good at or something that I particularly wanted, but I did experience it. And it seems like a long time ago now, Jeffrey. It's like, I mean, it's at least 20 years in the past, and I'm 60, 61 now, in fact. What does it mean to be a middle-aged woman who had a boyhood, at least as far as other people were concerned? How do I make peace with that child when that child seems to be so different from the person I became? What are the lessons of boyhood that I took with me? Not every lesson that I took with me from boyhood was necessarily a bad one. And I think that looking at the trans movement, you really got your start in it when we were still educating the public about what trans meant. And I think that we've like now entered the phase of it. We're now in the phase where we are talking more about how every trans story is different and not everybody experiences being trans in the same way. Yeah, and it's, a diff it's different generationally. My daughter is trans and no one was more surprised than I was when she came out to me. I think she would be the first person to tell you I was, I was not the perfect transgender parent 
poster child at that moment. I was really concerned for her. There was a lot of work that had to be done and most of it by me. But one of the things that I really learned in that experience was that being trans for someone coming out 20 years later than I did and almost 20 years younger than I am is it means something different. And, and so here's what I mean by that. When I came out as trans, I felt like I had to spend a couple of years explaining myself educating people around me because I was the first trans person that a lot of people had ever heard of. A lot of people thought that I'd made the whole thing up myself, you know. For my daughter's generation, it's a whole other thing. Being trans means that you can celebrate, you can be happy, you can be, and you can be trans exactly as you feel like. That's really interesting. And so 20 years ago, celebrating being trans wasn't even part of the conversation. No, I felt like I had to be apologetic. I felt like I had to say, I'm so sorry, but this is who I am. I hope you'll understand me now. If you read She's Not There, which is, continues to be a book I'm tremendously proud of, but there's the faint aroma of apology about some parts of that book. And that is not how, appearing, how many people experience being trans now. If you'll forgive me, one of the reasons I think people feel better about being trans and more celebratory, can I say this? It's through the work that's been done by a lot of writers, including me, there's been a lot of people doing the work, and there are people who've had a bigger influence than I have. But it does mean that, that sometimes there's a bit of melancholy for me that the world, which seems to be more forgiving and... and let's see, there's that word again, forgiving. A, a world which, which is more understanding and celebratory is a world that is, even though I helped bring it about, it's still a, a world that has come a little bit too late for me. Maybe that sounds very self-pitying. It's not meant to be. You know, my life was really hard. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a very lucky person. I'm a very grateful person. But, you know, being trans was, was, was really hard. I used to get into this fight with Kate Bornstein about it, whose next book was called Trance, Just for the Fun of It. And I was like, really? I'm glad it was fun for somebody, because it wasn't fun for me. You write in the book that throughout your childhood, you had this feeling, I think you wrote, you are not you. It was like a whisper in the back of your mind. Back then, like language and understanding of gender was so different. And I just wonder, did you always assign that feeling of you are not you to gender? It was specifically about the body that I was in. So it was not about affect. It was not about femininity. The sense of not being myself was definitely a physical one. Yet, I also had the sense that if I came out as trans, I mean, I'm not even sure I even knew what that word was, but I felt if I, if I came out or if I even gave it that name or applied it to myself, that it would mean that I was opening the door to, to danger, to a process that might very well take my life. And yet you still went forward with it. Well, yeah, but I was 40 years old by the time I, I got around to it. I mean, everyone always says, oh, Jenny Boylan, you're so brave. I think, actually, you know who's brave? People who come out when they're five. People who come out when they're 10 or 20. What, what did Winston Churchill say about Americans? They always do the right thing, if only as a last resort. <laughs> that was kind of that. I guess I felt like I'd, I'd, I'd tried every way I could of negotiating the issue of being trans. And again, it was like, well... I've kind of run out of choices. Although I'll also say that I'd, I'd reached a point in my life where I was being loved and protected by my partner, by my wife, Dee Dee, who, you know, I was afraid, I mean, we've talked about this before, I was afraid I was going to lose her love when I came out as trans. But in fact, it was her love that in the end gave me the courage to open the door that had to be opened. 
Yeah, and a large part of your life story is your love story with your wife. And I really like the way you write about love because it sounds very enormous and reasonable in a way. Well, it's it's one reason why I wanted to write about dogs because it's impossible to talk about dogs without talking about love. We don't have a good language for talking about love. It's It feels corny and melodramatic and silly. And yet you see these these tough characters or diffident or shy characters like my own father, who was a reserved man, who suddenly find that they can express love uh, in this with this kind of abandon and without apology to the dogs in their life, to the dogs that they love. So that's another reason why I wanted to write about dogs. It's true that I learned everything that I that I know about love from dogs, but I also learned everything about loss from dogs too, because to love a dog is also eventually means to lose that dog because they don't live forever. With writing about love and the clarity that you have, is that also how you talk about love like with your wife? Well, I'll have to be honest that, you know, my, my wife and I don't talk about love that often. We more like we live it. I mean, every day we we get up and we have coffee together. She walks the dog. Can I just, can we say this, make this clear? She's the one who walks the dog in the morning. And then I'm usually asleep. Then she brings me a cup of coffee and I read the paper in the bed with Dee Dee and the dog. And, you know, and then we'll have breakfast together and then we'll set about our day doing whatever, whatever fool thing we're doing or we used to be able to do back before we were unable to leave the house. And at the end of the day, we come together. Sometimes we'll have a cocktail and say, so how was it? I don't think we talk about love a lot, which is maybe just as well, but we do, we do live it every day. Is that, would you say, like the grand secret to your longevity? <laughs> Our longevity. We've been married 32 years, 12 as husband and wife, 20 as wife and wife. I don't know. Maybe we're just stubborn people. I don't know what helps keep relationship together but i i know meals are good we've we've always had our meals together and we've always spent a lot of time sitting you know around the dinner table talking and telling stories the mystery is finding newness isn't it what you want to do is get to the point in a relationship where you feel like each of you are a hand in the glove that is the other person you feel that you fit together in that way and yet, if you reach that point, then it's easy to kind of run out of surprises. I mean, I have to say, I, I hope most couples don't have the kind of surprise in store that I had in store for my wife. But I think finding newness is one of the secrets. And it's just as important, maybe more important, when you've been married for over 30 years as it is when you've been married for 30 days. Hearing that and reading your work, I just thought about how much I learned about myself dating and I just wonder, like, do you have, not regrets, but like, do you like feel like you missed out on dating since you <laughs> never did? Well, you know, I, I've never dated as a woman. That That is true. And I, I wonder what that would be like. And of course, dating itself has changed. I mean, I guess, I mean, I I, I haven't been on a date since 19, with, with somebody other than Didi since like 1987. I mean, I don't even know how, how do people meet each other? No, I don't. I, I mean, I don't. I don't feel I, I missed out on that. I mean, because I, I certainly dated plenty when I was in my twenties and as a teenager, and and that was fun. Before I started going out with Didi, I had some just incredibly romantic 
affairs. I write in She's Not There about this one relationship I had that began in London. You know, I met a girl by accident and then we, we lost touch with each other and then we found each other again by accident. We walked through the London night after a rainstorm when fog was rising up from the cobblestones and the town was deserted and we went into this restaurant that I knew and we were the only two people in it and the waitress came over and she recognized me and she said, can I get you the usual? <laughs> the usual, which was a bottle of this horrible Greek wine called Retsina. She came over, she put the bottle of, of wine on the on the table and we drank the wine and that girl looked over right in the middle of that meal and she leaned forward and she kissed me and we made out at the table and it was fantastic. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of nights like that, but I had that one. And that actually was not even the love of my life. It was a fun relationship, but it was not it was not the relationship that would last me into my 60s. In Good Boy, you write that being in love is a thousand times more important than sex to you. And that that has been the case for the majority of your life. I bring that up because one of my fears on this podcast is that I can be too sex positive and that we leave out people from the conversation like you who value being in love. I just like wonder with so many mixed messages, like have you always been able to like to say that so clearly? I probably couldn't have said that. And I, I want to make sure that I'm not... I mean, I'm I'm sex positive too. Please, I mean. Oh, you know, maybe maybe I'm I'm saying sex positive, but um, well, no, that is a great point because the book's My Life and Seven Dogs, and you said that you had had sex with fewer people than dogs. So maybe I'm just equating like the number to being sex positive. We have to be very careful when you say I've had sex with fewer people than dogs. Oh my god, that is true, but not in the way that you mean it. <laughs> <laughs> But it's always been more important for me. Good catch. <laughs> it's more important for me to be in 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 love. I don't know. I was never somebody in either gender. I was never somebody who could just kind of have 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 sex without thinking about. I mean, it always felt like a very precious thing to me. My body. Maybe it's because I had to spend so much time negotiating with my body and who I was in relationship to that body. It, it felt like something precious and special that I didn't want to. I mean, I love making out. I don't know. Is it just a kind of a cliched female thing? I, I, I always worried if they'd love me the next day. I, but I did, I did think that. And I think I always thought that way. And it's not because I didn't like sex. I mean, I love sex. Woohoo! Let the record show. Jenny Boylan recommends sex. I just think that we are always recalibrating as a society how we talk about sex and how we don't talk about sex. I mean, like for me in college, I would go home with somebody at a party because they liked me and because I thought that was what I was supposed to do, right? It wasn't until many years later that I was like, oh, do I want to go home with this person? I didn't realize that was like also a consideration I could have. Maybe it's just that I was shy. I don't know. I might not be like a great philosopher after all or have this great theory of love. I just think I was maybe a little insecure and a little uncertain too. I mean, I think I think I had the sense that, you know, being trans, like before transition, it felt a little bit like I was being dishonest with someone to like present myself as, you know, the, the someone who's going to play the man's role, you know, and do all those man things. I mean, it just seemed really weird to me. <laughs> it's like, really? I, I got to work this thing now? What, what, how, what, how does that even work? I don't even know. I mean, back in the, back in the day, I used to take a lot of like in college and stuff, I would I would go home with a lot of women 
And what I'd want to do was like snuggle, you know, read books of poetry in bed. Like seriously, that's what I wanted to do. I mean, it turns out I was, I think I was having lesbian relationships and except the women that I was with didn't know it. <laughs> so awkward, awkward for them, awkward for me. So I, I, I guess the thing, the point I want to make though, is that whatever I believe about love or sex, it's unique to me. It doesn't strike me as a philosophy to guide anyone else in the world. These are, this is not like a roadmap to anywhere except to my own heart. It served me well, but I, everybody else has to find their own way. Can I put you on the spot for a second, actually? Last time you were on this podcast, we were talking about the trans movement. This was three years ago. And one of the things we discussed was that as as a culture, like one of the big reasons why gay marriage was successful because we rebranded it and we made it about love. Um, what you said actually three years ago was that if you were to ask people who supports butt fucking, it's a direct quote, <laughs> people would say, not really. But when we made it about love, love is love. Love is hard to disagree with. And so we said, yeah. So I bring that up because we are talking about the trans movement and the PR branding of it and how gender identity just isn't sexy. And that phrase isn't, it's not telling a story and it's not something that is connecting with people. And I just like wonder if you have a better way of talking about the trans experience that is going to help us like move forward and make progress. There's a couple ways of reacting to that question. One of which is, to what extent do we owe cisgender people and other people who and, and people who don't necessarily understand what it means to be trans. To what extent do we owe them an explanation? Because you could say, this is what it is, and why don't you, the world is going to change when you meet me over here. It is worth interrogating this question of whether transgender people owe anyone else an explanation for who they are. I mean, I've spent a lot of my career explaining myself and explaining myself to other people and trying to make the reality of my life palatable to people who, who on some level don't get it. I mean, it's good work. I'm glad I did it. But sometimes I wonder, why don't you do the work, cisgender people? Why, aren't, why don't you bend over backwards to make me feel like I fit? Okay, so that's one, that's one answer to that. Another way, well, if, if I'm going to engage with this question, though, if, if the question is, how do I make it make sense to people, I would still say that the quest to become yourself is universal. It may be not in terms of gender, but in terms of something standing in between you and the person that you hope to be. And if it's not gender, it might be something else. Everybody has, you know, to use the Campbellian language of mythology, everyone has a dragon that they have to slay. Everyone has to find the courage to become themselves. And sometimes at great, at great risk. So I guess I think of it that way. I think that when you say, why is it up to trans people to, you know, explain and defend, the first thing I thought of is, well, it's up to us because we're being like actively legislated against. And so it's not just like we're being ignored, where rights are being taken away around the country. And so that's why I think about it. Yeah. So, I mean, we have a, a responsibility to respond to a threat. Right. How do we counter the threat? Well, we humanize ourselves and we try to make yeah. people understand that we're not crazy and that all we want is the, the same thing everybody else wants, which is the desire to be left alone, to love who we love and to live our lives according to our own passions. I don't particularly want anything from cisgender people except the, the right to live my life in peace. My sense is that when you see 
all of this kind of legislation around the country. And I guess Idaho is our latest lucky, lucky nerve center hotspot for anti-trans legislation. It's not that people really care about the sanctity of women's sports. I mean, they pretend like they do, but that's not what it's about. And it's not that they really care about the sanctity of the ladies' room. They pretend that they do, but they don't. What it's really about is that these people just don't like the idea that there are transgender people. They just don't like that idea. And they feel that if they can make our lives really difficult, they can erase us. It will go away, which of course we're not going to go away. We've been, we've always been here. We're always going to be here. So the question is whether you can make room in your world for, for me. And I wonder if like to help, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about you knew you were trans, you felt it in your body. And yet we've also moved bodies away from the conversation of trans people. And yet having a body is something that like everyone can relate to. Everyone can relate to it and everyone can relate to the idea of looking in the mirror and seeing something that doesn't quite seem like you. And believe me, as you get older and older, that experience can uh, only intensify. Although it's true of young people too. I mean, to be a teenager means to be this kind of awkward, goofy looking zit covered creature. You know, you, I mean, I, I always think about it's the scene in Bride of Frankenstein when Karloff first discovers a mirror and he's never seen a mirror before. And the first thing he's the first thing he does is he's he's absolutely terrified. He's like, rrr, rrr, rrr. and then slowly as he sees that the, the reflection is is doing what he's doing, he's he's like, rrr. he's gesturing from himself to the image of himself in the mirror, and he suddenly he makes this profoundly broken sound. It's the sound of a person who realizes what his outsides look like. It has nothing to do with the thing that he feels. And that's when he makes the sound, that sad Frankenstein sound. And that's the sound that you make when you're 15 years old and you look in the mirror. Whether you're trans or cis, I don't care who you are. And you realize that's going to be me. Uh, Jeffrey, I don't know if I've ever, but if I've never shown you the sign language, for, for, for the word for, for, for transgender. It's symbolic of everything. I learned this when I lost my hearing or lost a lot of my hearing a couple of years ago. The word for transgender used to be this. This is the word for sex. That's the letter X. And this is sex drawn across the cheek is, is, is the word for sex. And, and transgender is that turned around backwards. And to me that it's such a kind of a binary way of explaining trans experience, sex backwards. She says in her Frankenstein voice, the wonderful thing about ASL is that it's a kind of a constantly evolving language. It's a language of poetry. And the new sign is, is this, which is, is like a flower that goes over your heart. As it comes out of your heart, the petals open, and then it goes back on your heart facing the right direction, which to me is kind of symbolic of the progress that we've made over the last 20 years. It used to be like a binary flip, and now it's something that's in your heart that's hidden and you bring it out into the sunshine and the petals can open and now it can go back into your heart the right way. And that's another way, I hope, of, of making whatever this is clear to people who've never experienced it. Because even if you've never known anything about transgender people, you've certainly, to be human means to know what it's like to have something in your heart that you cannot share it because you're afraid of what the world will do. But if you find the courage to let that out, 
the sun shines down on it, the petals open, and now you can live your life in the right way. And like you said earlier, it's now a celebration. And it is now a celebration, indeed. And that is our interview with Jennifer Finney Boylan, whose new book is called Good Boy. That is out now. Now, I know that describing sign language is not quite the same thing as seeing and experiencing sign language. So we do have a link to a video in the show notes if you want to check that out. We also have a link in the show notes to our previous interview with Jenny. In it, she described appearing on The Oprah Show many times, in fact. And it's really a great example of how trans people have been treated on talk shows for so long and how far we've moved in terms of moving away from this sensationalized only way of covering trans people. So if you want to give that a listen, there is a link in the show notes and, of course, on our social media channels. We're on Twitter and Instagram at LGBTQPod. Come check us out there. And please keep tweeting about us and posting about us, helping us to spread the word. Doing things like that are really the biggest ways you can help our show grow and continue making new episodes. So thank you so much to everyone who does that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Come check out all of our amazing work at advocate.com and GLAAD.org. All right, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and we will be back next week with another brand new episode with Jose Antonio Vargas, the Pulitzer Prize winner. So you do not want to miss that. I'll see you Tuesday. Bye.